Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Paper, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. On today's show, DeepMind, the British artificial intelligence company owned by Alphabet, formerly known as Google, is more prominent than it is profitable. So what value does it offer the firm in the long run? The general feeling is almost one of surprise that I think a lot of these people thought that DeepMind wasn't anything particularly special or fundamental in terms of what it had. We'll hear from Dr. Pedro Alonso, the director of the World Health Organization's Global Malaria Program. He will give us an update on the global progress and the difficulties faced fighting the disease. The parasite has been developing resistance even to our most advanced drugs. And the story of the amateur scientist who went searching for cosmic dust in the gutter. He has been dredging the rooftops of houses and industrial buildings in Europe's cities for a good few years. First, though, back in 2014, Google, now Alphabet, acquired a relatively small artificial intelligence company in London called DeepMind for a rather hefty sum. But Google was already at the cutting edge of AI, and DeepMind is a zero-revenue venture. So what is the long-term goal here, and what is DeepMind working on that is so crucial to Alphabet's strategy? Hal Hodson is our technology correspondent, and he's writing about the company in this week's issue. He's joining me now to tell us more. Welcome, Hal. How are you again? I'm great. How are you? I'm very well. Fantastic. So my first question to you is DeepMind. It's clearly good for Alphabet's publicity. What is the big factor for Alphabet in keeping it running with no income? There are a few things. And I think given the secretive nature of the way DeepMind and Alphabet generally run these things, it's hard to know exactly. But definitely from a business perspective, a huge, huge thing is keeping talent away from their competitors. There are currently somewhere in the region of 400 neuroscientists and computer scientists at the King's Cross offices. Those are highly talented people who are not working for Amazon or Microsoft or Facebook to do the same kinds of things that they're doing at DeepMind right now. The second thing is kind of in the moonshot category. The reason For this is that while Alphabet has a lot of machine learning research and expertise all over the company, DeepMind is trying, or at least according to themselves, to push the boundaries of that. They're trying to come up with new ways to do artificial intelligence that are based on the principles of how humans do computation in the brain in various different ways. The question is, do you actually believe that something very special is happening here that's going to have some great long-term advantage to Google? That is the question. And in reporting this story, I talked to lots of machine learning researchers and people from all over the place, both on and off the record. And the general feeling is almost one of surprise that I think a lot of these people thought that DeepMind wasn't anything particularly special or fundamental in terms of what it had. But then watching what they've done, the things that they have put out, none of them are products yet, 
But they have done things like speech synthesis systems. Uh, it's called WaveNet, which can produce human-sounding speech, which is better than anything that has ever been done before. Currently, it's incredibly computationally expensive, but they're working on getting that down. So I, I think in some ways the proof will be in the pudding. I think it's very hard to say whether there's some fundamental advance until that fundamental advance is being used in the real world. We are not there yet. So now monopolies absolutely love to invest in, in long-term research. What do you expect from this really interesting venture, sort of an idea of reimagining the industrial lab of yore for the 21st century and giving it to Dennis Hassibis, a very young and charismatic, almost modern-day Robert Oppenheimer, who has this extraordinary vision. Do you expect it to produce the goods? So the goods in, in this question I would say, are artificial general intelligence. This is AI that doesn't just do one thing very, very well and very, very fast, like machine translation or speech recognition, but an AI system that can kind of do lots of different things in a quite human way. And I think given just the money and the smarts that they have in that building, they probably will come up with some very interesting things. I think they might come up with algorithms that are more generalizable, perhaps generalizable to the point where you can talk to it and have a useful conversation where you say, I'm on the way to the airport, but I want to stop somewhere and pick up a present for my brother. And it will just tell you, oh, well, you're going to stop at you know, this department store on the way and pick up a watch because it knows. It feels like an almost unassailable lead, that they have created a monopoly on talent that is just jaw-dropping and is going to be hard for anyone else in the world to match. What do you think? I think they definitely have a lead. I don't know what the raw numbers are. Somebody should be trawling the LinkedIn API to figure out exactly how many machine learning researchers each organization has. But... I think that hopefully the equalizing factor will be access to new and interesting kinds of data because there Amazon has a different kind of product to Google. It sells things. It's got data about stuff. Facebook has data about social connections and who your friends are and what they like. So in my eyes, even though Google has spent a lot of money hiring people, it's got this special AI hardware called TPUs. I'm not sure that they will take off really, really fast unless they can get access to these new data sets. And there's a lot of people out there who disagree with me and say that data is not important and that they'll just be able to whip up algorithms sort of on very little data or no data using simulations. But I think it remains to be seen. And I, I almost hope that that is a constraint on Google's growth because I don't think it's healthy to have one gigantic player doing AI the world over. Great. Well, listen, Hal, thank you for joining us. Sure. What are your thoughts on artificial intelligence and specifically DeepMind? If you have knowledge or expertise to share in the area and want to join the conversation, please get involved by emailing radio at economist.com or visit our social media pages. This week, the World Health Organization released the World Malaria Report 2016 at a conference in London, which revealed the progress the world is making in the fight against the global disease. To find out whether we're on track, we spoke to Dr. Pedro Alonso, the director of the WHO's Global Malaria Program, on the line before the conference. So in the last 15 years, we've seen an overall reduction in mortality of 60% of uh, case incidents of close to 40%. Six million deaths have been averted. Progress un unprecedented. And indeed, the, the Millennium Development Goal for malaria was met and surpassed. But we still have over 420,000 deaths every year. That's a child dies every two minutes. 
Uh, we still have more than 200 million malaria cases. We still have about half of the population that hasn't got adequate access to diagnosis and treatment. At least 25% of the population hasn't got access to adequate vector control. And that explains why we still have this massive global burden of disease. We are on track to seeing at least 10 countries totally eliminating malaria by 2020, but we are not on track to seeing global reductions on disease and death of a further 40%. That 40% reduction is the target set for 2020 in a strategy adopted by member states last year. Dr. Alonso explains that, by and large, this is because funding has been flattening. This is an issue related to non-significant increases of donor funding, but personally we attribute even a, a bigger role to the fact that Domestic funding, funding brought forward by the affected countries themselves, is also flat. But aside from financial challenges, there are several biological challenges to fighting malaria. The parasite has been developing resistance even to our most advanced drugs. There are some parts of the world where there's multi-drug resistance, and uh, therefore we need a continued effort to develop new classes of drugs to combat. This is a very, very complex biological organism. But Dr. Alonso remains optimistic since the arsenal of anti-malaria weapons is growing. In the vector control space, we have a growing pipeline of new products. We're looking at new drugs that can overcome the problem of resistance. For the first time, there is a first-generation malaria vaccine, though imperfect and with only partial efficacy. We'll start deployment in 2018. For the first time in history, a first-generation malaria vaccine will initiate uh, pilot deployment in at least three African countries. So critical to retain, to maintain, to, to, to promote, to accelerate our R&D effort to underpin our entire fight against malaria over the next 15, 20 years. And we'll be sure to check in on the progress along the way. Dr. Alonzo there from the WHO. Last week on the show, we discussed a recent study on solar panels that suggested that the panels themselves were becoming more green when considering the environmental production cost in their manufacture. As always, there was a rather illuminating conversation on social media. On Facebook, Scott Sheehan suggested it's merely a waiting game until all the environmental downsides disappear. He wrote, quote, It's only a matter of time before the machines creating clean energy, mechanics and technology are powered by clean energy. The means undeniably justify the end when it comes to shifting the paradigm to sustainable energy sources. Indeed, bright days lay ahead of us. Don't forget, you can contribute to the conversation with your knowledge and your expertise and share it with us by writing on our Facebook page or on Twitter at Economist Radio. And don't forget, if you enjoy the Babbage podcast, please share it with others so more people can be a part of the conversation. Finally, space dust. Asteroids hurtling around in space at high speeds have a tendency to crash into each other. And when they do, chunks fly off and many fall down on Earth. Researchers are keen to get their hands on the material and go to great lengths to do so. But one Norwegian musician has found some close to home. Joining me here on the line is Anano Bhattacharya, science correspondent. Hello, Anano. Hi, Ken. So first, what is the space dust that everyone is searching for and why does it matter? So uh, the solar system coalesced from dust, the planets formed, and part of that dust makes up 
asteroids that are hurtling around the solar system and planets. Some of that cosmic dust is still floating free and some of it comes free as a result of collisions between asteroids. And some of it lands on Earth. How does it get through the atmosphere? It falls as tiny micrometeorites, and as it falls through the atmosphere, it heats up, it often melts into blobs, and then it hits the ground. And where do people usually look for the stuff? So researchers have tended to go to great lengths to try and find it. These are tiny, tiny particles, a few times wider than a human hair. They've dredged the bottom of the deep sea, and they have melted huge quantities of ice in the Antarctic. These areas tend to be free of industrial contaminants, so the micrometeorites are easier to find. So now a Norwegian musician has uncovered a novel way of collecting this. What's happened? Well, this is a, a staggering story. So amateurs have claimed in the past that they've found micrometeorites on the roofs of houses, in gutters, and so on. And scientists have been loath to believe them, and, and none of these finds have ever been confirmed. The idea that you'd simply be able to just find some of these micrometeorites lying around on a rooftop, given the amount of industrial pollution that there is in cities, has basically led to any such claims being dismissed as urban myth. Now, John Larson is a particularly determined man, he has been dredging the rooftops of houses and industrial buildings in Europe's cities for a good few years. He gathered about 300 kilograms of sediment from guttering all over Europe's cities. Wherever he went to play, he would climb up on a roof and gather some muck and take it home. And uh, when he got it home, he would run it under a magnet and micrometeorites tend to be magnetic. So when he separated that off, he would then look at the resulting sludge that he had left under a microscope and identify individual micrometeorites. And he found them. So what did he do then? He contacted scientists all over the world. And finally, Matthew Genge at Imperial College in London decided to take him up on his offer to, to check out these micrometeorites. So Matt Genge put them under an electron microscope to have a closer look. And when he did, he found indeed the chemical composition of these micrometeorites was what you would expect from a micrometeorite that had come from space and not industrial pollutants that you find on Earth. So in other words, these little micrometeorites are all around us all the time? Indeed. John Larson's busy collecting more. The ones that he found are some of the youngest ever recovered. And we know that they're young. We know that they're less than six years old because the roofs that he collected them from have in some cases been cleaned as recently as six years ago. How interesting. So what does this all tell us about the early universe? What Matt Gedge would like to do is build up a more complete record of more recent micrometeorites. So these, as I said, are some of the youngest found. What he needs to be able to look at their chemical composition in the round is more of them. So he's hoping now that John and others will find more of them. And when he does, he can compare the composition of our solar system now from what it resembled a million or even a billion years ago. Thank you, Anano. We're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. 
That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. To read Hal's article on artificial intelligence... Oh, wait a minute. That doesn't sound good at all, does it? Or Anano's piece on Urban Stardust. Pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist and Printer Online. You can also get in touch with us through our social channels and by rating our podcast on iTunes. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.